Well, in this session, I want to talk to you about portraits of Christ. Now, to begin, go with me to John chapter 12, beginning about verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Well, Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, these Greeks had an interesting question, a very good question. We would like to see Jesus. Now, I've discovered that... A lot of people see him in a lot of different ways. Frankly, not all of them are very accurate. If you really want to see someone accurately, you have to get a fairly broad picture. Let me give you an example. Imagine with me for a moment that you're a person who lives in a village where Jesus is about to visit. You've heard about him and you're excited about his coming. And so you're watching closely. And when he arrives, you watch And a blind man comes up to him and says, Jesus, I would like to be able to see. And so Jesus says, okay, see. Boing, his eyes come open. And you say, not bad, not bad. So you start a Jesus church in your village, and you call it the speak and be healed church. And it grows and it prospers. Now you're another person in an entirely different village. And Jesus is coming to your village. You're excited about this. You want to see if he is who they say he is. You're watching, and the blind man comes up to him. It seems that every village had one and says, Jesus, I would like to be able to see. So Jesus reaches over and touches his eyes, and boing, they come open. You say, not bad, not bad. So you start a Jesus church in your village, and you call it the touch and be healed church. And it grows and it prospers. But now imagine that you're another person in another village and Jesus is coming to your town. You're excited. You're watching. And sure enough, here comes the blind man. Jesus, I would like to be able to see. Ah, and Jesus does something a little different. He spits on the ground, maybe moves it around with his toe some, picks it up and goes, boom, right in one eye, boom, right in the other eye. And then he tells this man something I don't think he had to tell him. Go wash it off. Well, he washes it off, and now he can see, and you're watching this, and you're thinking, not bad, a little different, but not bad. So you start a Jesus church in your village, and you call it the spit and be healed church. It grows and it prospers. And now eventually you have three great denominations going here who get together in an ecumenical council and they argue over who's right. No, it's touch and be healed. No, it's speak and be healed. No, it's touch and be healed, you know. And all the time they're doing this, blind people are running around not seeing. 
Well, the sad thing is, uh, they're all correct. And that indeed, they had seen Jesus this way. But they're incorrect in that they are less than what Jesus actually was. So it becomes very important that we see him accurately. We see him completely. Now, sometimes we don't get the full shot. Uh, I'm going to use Jim as an example here. Imagine for a moment that I'm going to introduce Jim to you. And so I come up and I take a photograph of him and I get a real close up here of his ear and I take it and I say, here, here's, this is my friend Jim. Uh, do, do you, uh, see, you, don't you recognize him? Oh, no. Well. well, okay, then I'll take another picture, you know, and I get a real close up of this eye and I bring it. Now I have two pictures. I have an eye and an ear. This is my friend Jim. Surely you'll recognize him. No, that doesn't help, does it? Well, okay, I'll try again. So I get a real close-up of a nostril with a bit of mustache there, and I enlarge that and say, okay, how many pictures do you want of my friend? And he'll say, look, give me a better perspective, will you? And so this is what I want us to do tonight, to look at the nature of Jesus from certain little story perspectives that have been a real blessing to me. And, and I like to think of these as portraits of Christ snapshots in a way the way god has weaved his tapestry of revelation for us i don't know if it's dawned on you but when mary and joseph held that little baby in that manger for the first time god could actually be touched amazing John, the revelator, the author of the Gospel of John and the epistles of John, got excited about that in his very first epistle. And he said, hey, you know, we, we didn't just see him. We didn't just hear him. We touched him, man. We touched him. And that was an exciting thing. Now, there have been periods of time in the history of this, uh, well, of our country, for instance, when uh, those who are the experts told us, don't touch your children. Don't hold your babies. Let them just cry it out. I don't know, but what they might have started World War II when they did that, man. And now we come along and we begin to understand that your skin is about the biggest organ that your whole body has. And more is communicated to you by that means. It is amazing to me that Jesus went everywhere touching people. Now, there were the regular taboos in that day. They didn't want to be touched by certain people, especially if they knew that they were sinner. Don't let them touch you. Gentiles, don't let a Gentile touch you. A Pharisee would even go way out of his way. He would cross all the way over a street rather than even meet a woman on the street because he felt he would be made unclean by the touch of a woman. Incredible. And Jesus comes and he sees people differently from others. He sees others. He sees people as people, as persons. And so everyone is touched by him or gets to touch him. I am amazed at that. You well know the story of, well, she was a woman of the streets, really who came into a party that Jesus was at. He was the guest of honor, but they weren't treating him as the guest of honor. 
And this woman comes in and begins to weep over his feet and dry his feet with her hairs from the tears that she had said, and everybody else gets very righteous at that moment and says, Well, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him. He wouldn't let that happen. But the fact is, he was a prophet, the one truly come from God. And that's why he let her touch him for the first time in history. A sinner could touch God. Awesome. Awesome. Lepers. Nobody would touch a leper. And that's understandable, man. It was worse than the AIDS of our day, man. It, you, you had them segregated out here. Nobody would touch them. But Jesus did. Jesus would. I'm amazed. I'm amazed. There was one particular spot. I, I love this moment. There was one particular point where Jesus was, well, he was, he, he was on his way to heal somebody, actually. There was a crowd around him jostling him and so forth. And Jesus said, hey, who touched me? <laughs> you know? Now, this is an incredible statement, and I love it because the apostles always wondered a little bit about Jesus. I think they wondered if he had all of his marbles at times. And they said, why are you asking who touched you? I mean, look at the crowd around here. Why do you ask who touched you? Uh... Jesus said, I know somebody did. I felt virtue go away from me. And the person who had touched him, this is the most incredible story, was an untouchable. You see, this lady had an issue of blood, and in the Jewish law, that made her untouchable because it was a continuous thing. She had for all of these years of her life been literally socially shifted aside and nobody could touch her, nobody could express their love to her. She was an untouchable until Jesus comes along. Wow. And he says, who touched me? And she'd gone to a lot of trouble hoping that maybe he would not have even known, but her faith was such that she says, maybe if I just touch the hem of his garment. So touch was a very important thing. Jesus spent time touching children. I love that. Now, I'm convinced that there was something about Jesus that made him very attractive to children. Now, children are not naturally comfortable around an adult, especially one they don't necessarily know. A stranger does not necessarily bring comfort to them, but there was something about Jesus, something about the way he was, that would even make mothers want him to touch their children. It's a beautiful story in Mark. Mothers are bringing their children to Jesus for him to just touch them. Bible doesn't say anything was even wrong with the children. Maybe the mothers just wanted to be able to write in their baby book, guess who touched you when you were two, you know, or something. And, and he's just standing there. Mothers are, I can see them crowding around trying to get into some sort of line just so Jesus can touch these children. Ah, but enter the apostles. Bless their hearts. These men Jesus prayed all night before he chose and got turkeys for it all. 
for which I'm glad because that's the sort he seems to work with. Otherwise, I would not have been chosen. <laughs> These guys enter in and say, Hey, this man doesn't have time to be touching your brat. Uh, I mean your child. <laughs> He's a very busy man. Do you understand that? He doesn't have time for this. He's holding the whole universe together. Do you understand that? However, I'm a registered agent of his, my card. And perhaps at a more auspicious time, I'll be able to get a very short meeting with him for you, but it won't be now. And uh, don't call us. We'll call you. And Jesus sees this. Now, if I had been Jesus, knowing the way I am, you know what I would have said to these apostles? I would have said, Thank you, guys. At last you're doing what I hired you to do. If you don't protect me from these crowds, how will I ever get to be a good Messiah? This is a busy job. But that's not what he said. You see, Jesus leadership seemed to be entirely different from the leadership of this world. Have you noticed? Do you have any friends that the more important they get, the less you can get in touch with them? The more important they become, the more you're on hold and then on hold and then on hold. Uh, sorry, he isn't in, you know, and so forth. But Jesus was indignant. You ever wondered how they knew? Can you imagine Jesus indignant? I don't know. <laughs> we, we tend to in our minds just see him holding little lambs and looking sad, don't we? Or I don't know, maybe he said, whoever's recording this, would you write down that I'm indignant? Mm -hmm. No, it's more likely they looked at him and said, oh boy, he's, he's indignant. Yeah. Yeah. And he got angry. He said, you let the children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Oh man, I like that. Well, there's another picture that I want to share with you. It was part of the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Fascinating story. Jesus was at a wedding party. and In fact, he seemed to attend a lot of parties. I kind of like that. He got invited to more parties than I get invited to, but maybe it's because I'm more of a party pooper and he was probably the life of the party. And so everybody seemed to want to have him at his party. I like that. And so he's at this wedding party. Which says something to me, too, that, that the very first miracle he performs is at a wedding party. It's kind of a validation, isn't it, of that which he created, the original marriage. And so he's at this wedding party. And things went wrong at this party. Oh, man, the host hadn't planned far enough ahead for all of the people that were going to be there. Have you ever had that happen to you? And it's really embarrassing. And suddenly, oh, no. We don't have enough wine. It's gone. What are we going to do? Now, if you can remember your wedding, you wanted everything to go right. Nothing infuriates a bride more than if things don't go right. And the dad who's paying for all of this kind of wants it to go right, too. And so everything had gone wrong until Jesus enters this picture. I love it. Now, he was a little resistant because he says it wasn't really his time. However, Mom, <laughs> okay, I'll do it for you. And you know what she says, and I love this. When you, If you want to know what Mary's message is to the world today, it's what she said right then. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. That was her last great message, folks. 
And if she's saying anything, that's what she's saying. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. And so Jesus said, hey, fill some water pots and bring them here. And they did. Now, go deliver them. Go use them. And as they poured it out, wine. And the host is beside himself. He says, this is incredible. What? This is better wine than everyone. Why didn't you... Why did you put the best wine out last? Usually it's the cheap wine that comes last. And you know what? Jesus, for his first miracle, saved a party. Isn't that great? He was so interested in these people just having a good time. And the host and the marriage going off right and the host not being embarrassed. And so Jesus sort of introduces himself to the scene by saying, I want you to have a good time. You know, a lot of people, you know, think that God's the great party pooper of life. And here you are, moving along in life, just having a wonderful time. And then God comes on the scene. When the fact is, when Jesus came on the scene, He saved a party. I love it. Let me give you another picture. I have to confess to you that I am a terribly self-centered man. I think about myself most of the time. And it, it's a miserable state <laughs> because I've discovered that the more I think about myself, the more miserable I become. And Jesus knew that. You know, He created us not for self-centeredness, not even for self-consciousness, but for others centeredness because he says that's where the joy is he says if you really want to find your life you have to give it away now imagine yourself with jesus you've you've been with this crowd of people for uh, a couple of days and by now of course they're hungry they've been listening to him teach and and they're hungry the apostles were a little slow in figuring this out after a couple of days you know they say hey people are hungry wouldn't take me that long to figure that out and then Jesus says one of the funniest things in the world. He says, you feed them. <laughs> I love that. I can hear the apostles saying, I didn't hear that. He didn't say that. <laughs> what are we going to feed them with? Nine months salary wouldn't feed these people. <laughs> I think that might have been a hint. Uh, Jesus, can we talk to you about apostolic salaries while we're at it here? And then the Bible tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion toward these people. He saw them as sheep not having a shepherd. He saw them in their hunger. Has it ever dawned on you that Jesus was hungry too? I mean, he was the one who had been doing the work. He's a hungry man. But you see, Jesus was the one truly others-centered person. He was the one who was truly interested in everybody else out there. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, he says, do you have anything? Well, we have uh, a little boy over here who's got a lunch. That's all, five loaves and two fishes. That's enough. <laughs> have, you, have you ever found yourself really needing something from God, really needing help, really needing a touch, as we will sometimes say, from God. 
some kind of direction. And Jesus says, well, I moved toward you. What do you have? Oh, man, I, uh, I only got about 30 cents here. You know? And I can hear Jesus saying, that's enough. We'll work with that. He did not say, and I, I like this, he did not say to these disciples, just five loaves and two fishes? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I need six loaves to do this trick. That's not going to be enough, folks. But you see, what I've discovered is whatever it is we have in the hands of Jesus will be enough. It will be enough. And so he blesses it, takes it, and he blesses it. Now, all of us want to be blessed. It's, it's a common word. We use it all the time. We'll either say, bless you, or, oh, I wish they would bless me. I wish the Lord would bless me. We can't even define the word without using the word, but we just know that we want a blessing. And sometimes we go to church. Not you guys. I'm not talking about you guys here. I'm talking about others. Sometimes we go to church and we find ourselves a good, safe seat somewhere where nobody can really see us or what have you. And we sit there and we say, all right, it's been a tough week. Satan's tanned my hide. I need a blessing. I hope you bless me today. You've got 30 minutes to bless me. Now, when we come in that kind of state, it's miserable. You know that. You know that. But what would happen? What would happen if instead we came with this kind of thought? Oh, man. I wonder if I can be a blessing today. I want to bless somebody. I wonder, will it be you? And when we gather together, we just sort of have this little sneaky look wondering, do I get to bless you? Are you the one? Are you the one? And that fits in with the very nature of Jesus. Here Jesus takes these buns. We'd call them buns. And he blesses them. And then he breaks them. Oh. Well, folks, uh, that's not what I had in mind when I got blessed. I didn't want to get broken. But that's what's next. <laughs> if he blesses you. Hey. <laughs> I don't want that. I'd rather say, ladies and gentlemen, you're now looking at a blessed bun. And I'd be on every TV show in the world. You know, you're looking at blessed buns here, folks. He's been touched by Jesus. I'm going to just sit here and loaf for a while. No. He blesses and he breaks. But I want you to notice why. He doesn't break just so he can say, boy, did I break them. No. He breaks so he can give away and give away and give away and give away and give away. That's why. I told you Jesus was the one truly others-centered person. And he even proves it at this moment because now I want you to see something that hit me and I thought, yes, Jesus, this is you. Feeding 5,000 people is a pretty hefty task. I don't know if any of you have ever done that or not. If you ever had a gathering at your house and it turned out to be 5,000, uh, it, it is a logistical problem. And somebody has got to be pretty busy providing bread. So Jesus, who was probably the hungriest person in the place, ends up being the last to eat. Why? Why? Because he was moved with compassion, see, he cared. 
about these people. And he was doing his best to see that their needs were taken care of. I, I'm amazed at this man. You know, there's another thing that I find rather fascinating about Jesus, and this is a, this is a wonderful thing for me. And it's a strange thing at the same time, and that is that Jesus was, was not a very recognizable person. Now, when we put our heroes together, we like them to look good, don't we? But there was something about Jesus that made him be able to get lost in a crowd. Fascinating. In another session, I've talked about this because of what John has to say in, uh, what John the Baptist had to say in the very first chapter of the Gospel of John. He says about Jesus, now listen to this closely, I didn't know him. And I wouldn't have known him. I only had one clue. The one who sent me, in other words, the Father, said, when you see the Spirit come down and remain, that's Him. I've seen and I testify, this is the Son of God. Wow. Hey, Jesus and John were cousins. I thought they grew up together and studied all of this and would have breakfast every Thursday morning somewhere and, and, and plan it out. And, and Jesus would ask him, uh, John, how do you like locusts? It's time for you to start practicing on locusts and you need to get a camel's hair shirt. That'll really make you preach, boy. But apparently not. And wonder of wonders, John says, I didn't know him. There was nothing physically about him. All of the pictures you've seen drawn notwithstanding, folks, there was nothing physically about him that would stand him apart from all other people. He could be sitting among us and we wouldn't know by his looks. By his looks. I like that. Now, the reason I like that is this lets me know he truly was Emmanuel, God, with us. Withness is sensed better from some people than it is others. And when I'm around a ridiculously handsome or outstandingly gorgeous person, I don't feel like they're really with me. <laughs> no, it's like, uh, did you bring me along because you were slumming or, or, or what? But Jesus comes in a way that makes us comfortable with him. And the only clue is that the Holy Spirit rests upon him and he thus is giving. He is anointed. And that passage on the anointing, that's a giving passage. What he's doing, he's preaching. He's healing. He's binding up broken hearts. He's doing things that are totally other-centered. His clientele is the rather baser sort there. Because they're the ones who can't do anything for him except receive. Except receive. So I'm delighted in the fact that he could lose himself in crowds. In, in fact, Jesus was the average Jewish male height of his day, which is why I think he could lose himself in crowds rather easily. If he would have been eight or ten feet tall, we'd have known that was him. But he could lose himself in a crowd. 
Now, one thing, and Jim, I guess I need to tell you this, <laughs> since you're rather tall, the Bible does say, and this is just for fun, this isn't really a necessarily good biblical interpretation, but it says that we will be like him when we see him, because we'll see him as he is, so uh, enjoy being tall now. You'll be five feet six. <laughs> That's not necessarily true, but it sure is a fun thought. Well, another of the things that blesses me immensely about him is the way he was patient with his apostles. When you look at the way these men were, and, and this would be a fun study, by the way, if you go into the Scripture without any preconceived ideas and merely study the apostles, you can only come to one conclusion. They were world-class losers. And it seemed that the very basic message of the nature of Jesus never seemed to get through to them. I'm amazed at these men. I've said this before, but it, it, I probably ought to repeat it in every tape that I do. These men, more than any other single thing, these apostles, more than anything else recorded in Scripture, argued. They didn't argue over deep theological questions. They didn't solve the tension between predestination and free choice. No, they didn't bother with great arguments. But they argued over who is the greatest. And Jesus let them do it. There were times when he's busy doing messianic things, he's blessing people, he's healing people, and the disciples are over here. Yeah, 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 yeah. They uh, let him let him heal people. Where? Yeah, 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 yeah. And he let them do it. He didn't say, "Would you guys get your act together over there? I need help over here healing people. Help me at least do some preaching." He let them argue. I think he still does, doesn't he? <laughs> His patience is still evident in our lives. He let them argue. Right down to the very end, the last event, the last evening before the crucifixion. At this time we call the Last Supper. You know what they did at the Last Supper? Many people don't realize this because we tend to see the Last Supper as this moment of great dignity when they are all gathered together and it's like everyone seems to know that we'll someday paint a picture so let's all stand on the same side of the table so we can all be seen. It appears that this was a moment of great dignity, a banquet type affair. You read the Scripture, you discover that night the apostles once again this is three years of seminary they've been in with Jesus. And once again, they argue over who is the greatest. If I had been Jesus, I would have fired them right there. I would have said, gentlemen, the crowds have left us anyway. I can't afford you fellows anymore. We're laying you off. I'm going to find someone with a little bit better theological position. I mean, after three years. But that's not what he did. He patiently taught them one more time. 
Hey, fellas, no, no, no. He that is greatest must be servant of all. Oh, yes, that's right. We forgot. Now, that's amazing to me because there was nothing that Jesus taught more thoroughly <laughs> than that, that they were to be servants of all. But they kept forgetting. Yes. And yet he stuck with them. In fact, that same night after they had argued, they evidenced the fact that they never understood what Jesus was saying. He said to him, You've seen the Father from now on. You know that. You know that you have seen Him. And then you know what? Right after Jesus says that, they go, Duh! Show us the Father. <laughs> Jesus, and He almost did. He says, What? Have I been so long with you? And yet you don't know me? Jesus got frustrated. He didn't walk around with do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. You know, he was, he was just like us. And Don't you understand? When you see me, you've seen the Father. Hey. And then he goes on and he teaches them. And he says, now, where I'm going, you know. You know the way and you know where I'm going. And then you know what they say? Duh. We don't know where you're going. Show us the way. And Jesus says, oh, no. I mean, when you know that this is your last night with the guys and they haven't caught it yet, this has got to be desperate. But he says, hey, fellas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But they're not through. Jesus says, now, okay, you guys, you know, you love me and the Father loves you and that's why we've revealed all this to you and so forth. And then you know what they say? Duh. <laughs> Duh is not there. I just think it should be. Why did you pick us? <laughs> he just he just told him. He just told him. And once more he goes over and he says, Hey guys, it's because you love me. It's because you love me and you've been with me. Now do you understand that at the end of three years of teaching and ministry for him to be that patient? with them is one of the most beautiful pictures that you can find in Scripture. He's still patient. It's interesting that patience is one of the traits of the Father in Exodus 34, 6, slow to anger, long-suffering. It is a gift of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It is thoroughly evidenced by Jesus in His life. The only people he was not patient with were the religious leaders. And that's a bit scary, isn't it? But to those who came to him, the sinner, the sick, the maimed, the leprous, patience poured from him. Well, let me give you one more portrait in a way. It's still the same night, actually. Uh, things have gotten pretty tense. They've left that place and now gone to a garden, which was a place where Jesus frequently went. It, it seemed to be a place of rest for him, almost a place of security, you could say. The guys are all with him except for one. 
we know who that was. Judas had a business to take care of. But Jesus goes to the last place of rest and security available to him for his most intense moment of prayer. He asked three guys, the biggies, we might say, go with me a little further down here, would you guys? And would you pray with me for a little while here, man? This is so intense. I'm afraid I'm going to die, man. I am, I am, I'm so filled with sorrow. And Peter, James, and John says, oh, yeah, sure. You can count on us. We'll be here. We'll pray. So Jesus goes a little further, and they enter an apostolic prayer meeting. Jesus comes back, wakes them up. Have you ever been asleep for an hour and then been awakened? Are you any good? Nah. They weren't either. Yes, yes, yes. We're sorry, Jesus. We forgot. Yes, you can, you can count on us. We're apostles. <laughs> so Jesus goes back and they re-enter their apostolic prayer meeting. And then when Jesus comes back, wakes them up again, says, hey guys, pray that you don't enter into temptation, man. It's all over. And I can see him thinking, temptation? Temptation? I don't see any temptation. What's all over? All over? And then I think Peter wants to make up for what he had done. Have you ever really messed up? You don't have to answer this. I mean, this is a rhetorical question. Have you ever <laughs> kind of made promises to the Lord and then you just didn't quite do it? And so you say, okay, Lord, I'll tell you what, I I'll make up for this, okay, okay? I I'll, I'll do something extra. I I I'll be nice to my wife for a change or, or my husband or something, you know, or, or, or I'll bless a kid rather than slap him or something like that. Peter, I think, decides he's going to make up for this. And so he tries to rescue Jesus. He's the one man with a sword there. And by the way, you're probably, I don't know if you've noticed this, but this event is recorded in all four Gospels. Only one Gospel identifies who had the sword. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us. They were being kind. They were trying to protect the fellow. But you see, the one who does tell us is the one who had a little bit of a competition going with this man. And so John, who on several occasions uh, let you know where he had either beaten Peter or something of that nature, he's the one who says, it was Peter, it was Peter. <laughs> and so Peter pulls his sword to rescue Jesus. We try to rescue Jesus a lot, don't we? We do. Sometimes we try to defend the faith. We try to keep the world from thinking badly about Jesus. Maybe people come out with movies that are blasphemous, and so we want to go and tell them you can't do that. We try to defend Jesus a lot, don't we? And every time I see us try to do that, there are ears on the ground all over the place because Jesus doesn't need us to rescue him he only needs us to preach him he only needs us to proclaim him there is no protest against blasphemy that will ever accomplish what preaching of the gospel will accomplish 
And so Jesus tells Peter several things that are recorded in the different Gospels. One, he says, permit even this. And he says, put up your sword. Those who live by the sword die by it. And he also says, I have to drink this cup, Peter. I have to drink it. Now, the word uh, the cup, the words, are very significant in ancient history. If you're aware of the life of Socrates, when he had been condemned to death, his mode of execution was the cup, poison, hemlock. And when Jesus drinks the cup, Boy, he was drinking the death that my sins and your sins have produced, the fatal poison that would kill the whole human race were it not for him who drank it and took our sins upon him. He says, Peter, I'm not going to let you save me from saving you. I will not let you rescue me to keep me from rescuing you. I have to do this, Peter. And then he destroys the evidence. There's this ear flopping around on the ground. Jesus picks it up, puts it back on Malchus' head, and the evidence is destroyed. Malchus cannot even take Peter to court for assault and battery. Your Honor, he cut off my ear. <laughs> really? Which one? I keep forgetting. I just keep forgetting. Well, we come now to kind of a final moment because very shortly after this, Jesus is being tried. It is a cruel mockery of a trial. You know that even in the most unjust of courts and legal systems, this trial would not stand up. And yet Jesus never defended himself. And when they brought him before Pilate, the most amazing thing, person after person here in John chapter 18 comes to Pilate with stories about Jesus, with their own pictures of him, their own portraits of him. They were all bad. Isn't this amazing? They were all bad. And the only evidence Pilate has to consider about Jesus is bad evidence. Oh, bad picture. Ooh, tough story. Ooh, bad story. Mm, terrible story. Now, you know, our hearts cry out, we've got to have somebody in there defending him. Somebody's got to be there saying, that's not the right picture. No, that's not him. I know him better. That's not him. This can't be true. You want to jump in there, don't you? You, you, you want to save him. Jesus never said a thing. Pilate says, man, I can let you go. You know that. I have the power. Answer these charges, man. Jesus doesn't say anything. It's quiet. And then the most remarkable statement. 
Pilate has seen all of the negative pictures. You know what his conclusion is? He looks them over and he says, I find in him no fault at all. Man, my heart cries that out too. I've had a lifetime of looking at pictures of Christ. I have heard people say things about him that were extremely negative. I've had a chance to see all of it, and often I want to defend him. But I've discovered that he doesn't need defense. He proved that to us. And then, with Pilate, my heart cries out, I find in him no fault at all. Let me give you a little personal theory. Do you remember the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar? It was a, a view of Jesus through the eyes of Judas. You understand how they approach that through the eyes of Judas. Consequently, it had a, a little bit less than through the eyes of faith bent to it. There were indeed some very negative parts, places where they put words in Jesus' mouth that were not there in the Scripture. However, if you will look back in your timeline, you may notice that Jesus Christ Superstar just preceded the Jesus movement. We were all upset. This isn't accurate. That's not the way Jesus was. And that's true. It isn't. But I have discovered that when the world just hears his name, something happens in their hearts. Jesus wins, even when a negative vision is produced of him, when a negative portrait is shown of him. Jesus wins. He wins. I watched a movie of that, Jesus Christ Superstar. I don't know where it was filmed. It could have been filmed in the desert of Southern California. I think it was filmed in Israel. I don't know. But there was a closing to that. I don't know if you saw it or not, but I saw it. And I thought, now I know. Now I know why. You see, they had finished the production, finished the filming... All of the actors and the production people were boarding the buses that would take them back to town and away from the set. They had completed Jesus Christ Superstar. But as each of them got on the bus and made their step up onto the bus, before they took the second step, they paused and they looked back at the hill where there happened to be three crosses that were part of their set. And they just looked at it for a moment and then they didn't say anything. But you could tell they were thinking. And then they got on the bus. And then the next person would make the first step up and then just stop as if reluctant to leave and just look back and the camera would follow their eyes to this hill where three crosses were. 
and then they would get on the bus and one after another would get on and would stop and look back. And I said, oh, Jesus, you won. <laughs> you won. They think they're looking at it through the eyes of Judas, but even Judas knew he had killed an innocent man. And Jesus says to Peter, I will not let you save me. I've got to drink this cup. I have to go through all the negative portrayals. I have to go through all the people using my name as an expletive. I have to go through all of the negative musicals and movies that will ever be made about me. I have to do this, Peter, for you. And my heart cries out with Pilate. I find in him no fault at all. You can take a small little picture like I did of Jim, and you may not be able to tell much, but once you begin to see the perspective of who he is, I think you also will find in him no fault. But there's one more beautiful picture of this. Jude says, Now unto him, Jesus, who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Ah. You see, because he paid that price, he now has the power to present you to the Father faultless. And say to the Father, eh, I find in him no fault at all. <laughs> I've got him covered, Dad. What a picture. Oh, Lord, you're so good to us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you. Thank you for letting us know him and walk with him and make all these discoveries about him, both in the Scripture and in the way he relates to us, and we express it to you. And now, Lord, we'll be glad to take your word and with the Greeks let others see you and find out where you are and serve you and love you. We're glad to do this. And we're glad to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.